comes from the book of Matthew. We're continuing today our kingdom series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the text it reads, beginning in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we ask now that you would teach us again through your word, as you promised to do. Help us to open our hearts and receive the truths you have for us. Help us not to be defensive, but help us to see the areas that we fall short of the glory of God and the righteousness of Christ. But also, Lord, help us to walk away today praising you that our acceptance is not based upon that, but it is completely, 100% entirely based upon the righteousness of Christ and his perfect work upon the cross. Bless us now, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Pinocchio, why didn't you go to school? School? Well, I, um... Go ahead, tell her. I was going to school till I met somebody. Met somebody? Yeah, uh, two big monsters with big green eyes. Why, I... Monsters? Weren't you afraid? No, ma'am, but they tied me in a big sack. You don't say. And where was Sir Jiminy? Uh-huh. Oh, Jiminy. Uh, leave me out of this. They put him in a little sack. No. Yes. How did you escape? I didn't. They chopped me in a firewood. Perhaps you haven't been telling the truth, Pinocchio. Perhaps. Oh, but I have. Every single word. Oh, please help me. I'm awful sorry. You see, Pinocchio, a lie keeps growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. She's right, Pinocchio. You better come clean. I'll never lie again. Honest, I won't. He lied at the end. Why didn't his nose grow? The story of Pinocchio is about a wooden puppet who came to life and whose ultimate desire was what? To be a real boy. And as the story shows, lying is very much a part of being a real boy. And why is that? Because we are all, every single one of us, little Pinocchios at heart. In 2002, the University of Massachusetts, we said it, conducted a study on lying, that's a hard word, and discovered that 60% of people lied at least once during a 10-minute conversation. And you know what the average was? Two to three lies being told. Bunch of Pinocchios. And the psychologist, so Robert Friedman, he was observing the study and he commented on it saying this, people tell a considerable number of lies in everyday conversation. It was a very surprising result, for we didn't expect lying to be such a common part 
of daily life. There's been some other studies, and one poll found that 65% of high school students cheated on at least one of their major exams. Well, another survey found that 91% of people routinely lie about matters that they think are trivial, what we often call white lies, and while 36% admitted that they lied about important matters. 86% of kids admitted to regularly lying to their parents, and 75% admitted regularly lying to their friends. 70% admitted to lying regularly to their spouse. There's so many lies in our culture. It's all around us. It's within us. And more often than not, we don't even see it. The check is in the mail, we say, when it's not yet. I'll start my diet on Monday, we say, and then it's next Monday. (laughs) Let's have lunch sometime, though in reality, how often do we say that with no intentions whatsoever of actually getting together and doing lunch? You know, one of the worst things about our lying, it's this. It's what the author Austin O'Malley said about a lie never standing alone. He said, a lie has no legs, for it requires other lies to support it. Tell one lie, and you are forced to tell others to back it up. And so here we are, we little spiders, who have carefully weaved together our carefully crafted web of lies. When it comes to lying, it is the language of kingdom citizens. Though not the kingdom you might be thinking of, not the one Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 5 when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, for lying is not that kingdom's language. Lying is the language of Satan's kingdom. That's the language that is spoke. Why? John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, that must not be us if we are citizens of his kingdom. We must be truth-tellers, not liars, if we are to be citizens of his kingdom. We are to speak the language of truth, not lies. And why is this so important? Well, one... God is truth. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, think of truth there, revealing, right, not hiding, not darkness, and in him is no darkness at all. Secondly, the reason this is so important for kingdom citizens to be truth tellers is because God hates lying. He absolutely does. Proverbs 12.22 says this, Lying lips are a what? Abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And one more verse here. I'm throwing a bunch at you, but that's all right. Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, and idolaters, we got a bad bunch here so far, don't we? But what's the next one say? And what? All liars. What about all them? Their portion will be the, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
See, the Bible is crystal clear here. There is a kingdom of darkness whom liars serve and speak its native language with their tongues, and there is a kingdom of light whom citizens serve with their language of speaking the truth with their tongues. And James, you know, we could go back there to James chapter 3 and 4 and see all about tongues again, couldn't we? And the way we're supposed to interact with them. But we're not going to do that this morning. See, the starting point of every single person within the human race is the kingdom of darkness, speaking the language of lies, and not the kingdom of light, speaking the language of truth. It is. Which, this is a truth that is really difficult for us to swallow, isn't it? And so what do we do? We do what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did, which was what? We bend the standard to fit our behavior. That's what we do. I'll say that again. We bend God's moral law, we bend his standard to fit our behavior so that we can feel like we are following it. And that's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. And so in our text this morning, we see how Jesus comes along and addresses this approach in his typical mic drop kind of a way, which left people's jaws dropped on the ground. And what does he tell them? Exactly the same thing he's been telling them over and over and over with different examples so far in Matthew chapter 5. All right, and here's his thesis, though. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most religious, which is the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, our text shows us three things that we must come to grips with if our righteousness is going to exceed that of the most super-duper religious. Because even that's not enough before God. All right, and here's what they are. To be a kingdom citizen, you must understand the purpose of the law. Secondly, the perversion of the law. And third, the perfection of the law. Let's look at that first one. To be a kingdom citizen, you must understand the purpose of the law. Verse 33, I'll read it again. Again, you have heard it said, you've heard that it was said of old, of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, what does it mean to swear an oath? Well, in the Bible, here's what this was. An oath was a promise to either do something or not do something, and in saying what you would or would not do, you would invoke God's name as a witness who would then bring judgment upon you if you broke it. It was a very serious thing. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, he's summarizing not only what the Mosaic law had to say on swearing oaths, but he's actually addressing the perversion of what the religious leaders did with the Mosaic law, which we're going to deal with in a few minutes on our second point. Now, in order to understand the perversion of the law, first we need to understand what it was, what the law was, and why God gave it. Well, we just dealt with what the law was on swearing oaths, so now let's deal with why God gave it. Why did God issue the command of how to swear oaths? Well, the answer is it's basically the same reason he issued his decree on divorce, as we looked at several weeks ago when we met together. Why? To restrain evil. That was the purpose of it. As we talked about several weeks ago from Matthew chapter 5 and 19, which are parallel passages on Jesus' teaching of divorce and remarriage, we saw how God never intended for divorce at all. It was never a part of his plan. But he allowed it. Why? Because of the hardness of people's hearts. See, God made allowance for divorce in order to hold back people's evil. 
See, back then, when a man would divorce his wife, there was no such thing as alimony, right? He got everything, and she was on her own. And if she didn't have a father or a brother or somebody close like that who would take her in and take care of her, she was in serious trouble. Because back then, they didn't have John Deere farm tractors, right? Typically, the way it worked was you needed a lot of muscle. And many women didn't simply have enough biologically to take care of the land. And so they were in big trouble if their husband just dismissed them and said, get out of here. So that meant that not only did she lose her husband when he divorced her, she lost her very livelihood. And so God came along and he saw this mess of divorce happening all over the place and he band-aided that mess but to limit its fallout. That's what he was doing. All right? Because of the hardness of their hearts, he issued a band-aid for it, though that band-aid even was never a part of the original design on divorce and remarriage. And so that's the picture we need to have in mind here as we approach Jesus' teachings here when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's not saying this is wrong and I have a better way, right? Because what did Jesus do with the law? He fulfilled it. He filled it full. He didn't make it obsolete. One iota, one dot, or even the iota and dots are going to be fulfilled is what he said at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Remember that? And so Jesus is not making the law obsolete. He's not. He's saying, here's what God did with the Band-Aid fix, and here's how my kingdom citizens are to take that truth and go even further with it. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me this morning? We seem a little spacey here. Maybe it's me. That's the picture that we have to have in mind here. Back in Moses' day, they were going around lying to each other without cause, which caused all sorts of problems. And you know, I know that's really difficult for us to imagine, considering that we live in a culture about absolute honesty, right? We have politicians who always tell us the truth. We have social media where people always present the truth exactly how it is, right? They never put themselves forward in the most positive light possible. And a news media that would rather go bankrupt than sell us lies, right? So this is hard for us, but try here to really follow the illustration. I know this is disconnected, all right? I know I'm stretching your imaginations, but try to imagine a really, really dishonest culture. And some of you say, I don't have the gift of sarcasm. Now, similar to the problem with divorce, God stepped in and he band-aided that mess too. He saw all the lying going on around. And he's like, this needs to be addressed, right? I'm dealing with Israel, which is not the church, right? It's not the church. The church is made up of who? Regenerated, spirit-and-dwelt people. Was Israel that entirely? No, they weren't. And so he stepped in to band-aid that mess. And he implemented oath-making for what? For every flippant thing? No. For very serious and solemn occasions where if the promise was not kept, the consequence would be great. And so that was the purpose of swearing oaths under the Mosaic Law. Now you know the what and the why there. It was simply to halt the chaos, to band-aid it. And so what did the religious leaders of Jesus' day do with God's law here? What they always did. They twisted and perverted it into something that was easy to follow. They twisted what the Mosaic law said about anger, as we saw two months ago, lust and divorce, as we just mentioned, right? They took the standard and they twisted it, which leads us to our second point, the perversion of the law. Again, you have heard it was said, 
of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath for your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All right, so here's what these jokers were doing. Under the Mosaic law, if you swore an oath, and it was in the name of the Lord, that was a very serious vow. All right? And some of you know the story of Jephthah's daughter, right? And you know how serious that can be. It was a life or death sort of thing. And we don't have time for that. We'll deal with that in Fellowship and Focus. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day understood how serious it was to swear an oath in the name of, the, in the name of Yahweh. So they wanted to still be able to have something more than yes. They wanted an in-between. They wanted kind of a second-class oath. Right Where it was like, I can do this oath, and if I break it, it's not like as serious as swearing in Jehovah's name, or in Yahweh's name, sorry. And so, what did they swear by? All sorts of things. They swore by all sorts of things, which they saw as second-class oaths, which could be broken since they were not ultimately binding. Did you swear by heaven? They would ask. Oh, well, that's not God. You know, that's a little bit disconnected from him. That's okay. You can break that one. That's okay. Did you swear by the earth? That's okay, too. That's just dirt. You can, you can break that one. No problems. Did you swear by Jerusalem? Ah, that one's not binding either. Except if you were facing Jerusalem when you swore upon Jerusalem. Then you don't bind that one. That one's not okay to bind. Did you swear by the temple? Well, you can break that as long as you didn't swear by the gold in the temple. <laughs> this is silly stuff. All right? They keep going with it. Did you swear by the gift you put on the altar in the temple? Oh, well, yes, you cannot break that one. If you wanted to break an oath related to the altar, you should have swore on the altar, not the gift upon the altar, because that gift is primary. That goes right to God. The altar is like a disconnect, so it's second class, right? So that's how this was. The way this worked was that the closer the thing you swore by got to the name of Yahweh or the center of the temple, because that was closely connected to Yahweh back then, the more serious was the lie. And just in case you think our culture is any different, let me painstakingly remind you it's not. Did you guarantee somebody that you would do it? Oh, I'll do it. I guarantee I'll do it. Ah, well, I guess as long as you have a really good excuse, you don't have to. Unless you pinky swore, then you absolutely have to do it. Because pinky swears, you know, and pinky fingers interlock, like that's binding. You cannot break that. Have you seen how strong pinkies are? Did you accept the calendar invite for that meeting or appointment and then change your mind about it afterwards simply because you didn't feel like it? Well, of course you can skip out on that as long as you give a 24-hour notice. That's okay. Not a big deal. Do what you want. Do what you feel like so long as there's a 24-hour notice. Unless you swore on a stack of Bibles. Anybody ever heard that one before? A stack of Bibles. One Bible, one God's Word is not enough. We need to you know, times 50 on that thing. Okay? And if that's what you swore on, I wouldn't advise breaking that one. That's a stack. You know, that's, that's big problems. You probably, if you wanted to break your oath, you probably should have swore on something else, like maybe your mother-in-law's good name, something that's not quite so serious, right? Did you agree to meet someone at a certain time but not even show up or show up ridiculously late for no good reason? That's fine unless you crossed your heart, hope to die, and stick the needle in your eye. You have all these little silly sayings. It's the same thing. And I know it, 
you know, they're mostly, a lot of them are for kids, but we do the same sort of thing, right? We're Pinocchios. We are all liars who are surrounded by other liars. So we pinky promise, we double promise, we ooper, super, duper promise, we swear on a stack of Bibles promise, we cross our heart, hope to die promise, all sorts of things that are just as silly as what the Pharisees did. So what does Jesus say about that? Don't take an oath by heaven. That is actually connected to God's throne, he says. That's a first level oath. Don't do that. Tier one level oath. It's connected to God's throne. Don't do that. What makes it just as serious as swearing unto the Lord. Don't swear by the earth. That's his footstool. That's directly connected to him. His feet are on it, metaphorically. Nor should we swear by Jerusalem at all, for that is the city of the great king, who, as we know, is the son of David, Jesus Christ. Also, don't swear by your head. Why? Because you can't control that thing. Look around. We have many people in here. Hairs are grain. I'm getting a few here and there. I can't stop that. Right? We have no control over that whatsoever. Don't swear by that. Only God is in control with that. Therefore, even swearing by your hair is actually tier one level oath-making since that's connected to God. You see what, the, what Jesus is saying here? What Jesus is doing is he's showing how you can try all you want, but this is all ultimately about God. All statements we make with oaths are ultimately about God. All statements actually connect directly to God. And so we must, as his point is very directly there for us, tell the truth. So be truthful. How much? How much so? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's all you need. That's all you should ever need because of how honest you are. And this kind of honesty is what Jesus says is the characteristic, it's the language of his kingdom citizens. They are honest. But sadly, as we know, Oftentimes, God's, as God's people, we aren't that honest, are we? We go around Pinocchioing without a care in the world in so many numerous different ways. What kind of ways? Well, let me give you a few examples of this, and we could really camp out here forever, but we're not going to. Strategic lies, that's one of the ways we do this. This one never happens in church, though, does it? Do we ever tell someone a lie or partial truth because we don't want to hurt their feelings? This sadly happens all, all the time in churches, right? What happens is there's maybe, maybe there's ministry conflict, right? Where somebody is sinning, they're being just harsh, they're being a pebble in everyone's shoe, and so what does the leadership do? They come along and they say, you know what? You're so great here, but we think we have a better ministry for you. We're going to direct you over here to the closet ministry where you clean it up every Friday. That'll be great for you. In their head, they're like, and they won't be around anybody. When in the reality is, what should they be doing? Not strategic lying. <laughs> Tell them the truth. Say, look, we love you, but you're kind of a jerk, right? Like, deal with the issue. Don't be a strategic liar in order to try to people please. This happens all the time. That's just cowardice. It's fear of man instead of fear of God. Another way we do this is pious lies. We lie because, you know what, it's for the greater good. We have to. Maybe we tell exaggerative lies in terms of flattery, right? And we do so because we want to make them feel good or, more often than not, gain their favor. Instead of doing what the Bible commands, which is to encourage them in the Lord with truth as we ought. That was just the best ever, literally. And our hair was like, that was kind of gross. You know, like, that wasn't very good, right? That's a strategic lie. 
You ever see that person singing on the worship team in that church where it's like, is this a make-a-wish thing here? What's going on here? Why are they allowed to sing up there? You ever see that before? We've all seen it, right? And what often happens? Nobody comes along and is like, hey, you know what? I know the Bible says make a joyful noise, but not like that. At least not on stage in a microphone. Do it out in the congregation, praise God, and then do it there. But nobody does that, right? Instead, what do they do? Turn their mic down. <laughs> I've seen that. You've seen that, I'm sure. I've talked to some of you who have seen that, right? Because nobody has the courage to deal with the issue and say, you know what, brother? You know what, sister? Praise God, you like to make a joyful noise, but I think you have other gifts that God has given you for ministry. All right? And then this is exact, and now you know, you all seen American Idol, right? Where they get the people up there who sing, and it's like, oh my goodness, how did they get, how are they so blind? How bad of a singer they were, right? Now you know how that happens, because people tell these kind of lies and don't come along and just tell people the truth they need to hear in a loving way. How about this for an example of pious lying? Are you a different person at your church than you are at your home or your work or even on the internet with a bunch of random strangers? Do you show up at church with your, and focus on this word here, all right, proverbial mask on? Do you? Proverbial mask on, right? Do you do that? Ready to impress people with the not real you that you've dolled up and presented forth as being, you know, look, look who I am. I'm so religious. I'm so pious. I love Jesus, all this stuff. And then the rest of the week, you're the opposite, not even close to that. You're a totally different person. There's exaggerative lies, and there's a million ways we do this, and no, I don't think that statement is an exaggerative lie. Anyone here married and you've ever heard or said yourself, you never do insert the blank. Or, you always do that. What is that? It's an exaggerative lie, is what it is. Which obviously, and you know, it upsets our spouse, who doesn't, for some reason, appreciate the slanderous lie that we've just thrown before them. Now, why do we say stuff like that? It's because we're not interested in the truth. What are we interested in? Well, we're upset. We want vengeance. We want to feel better. We want to get a load off of our chest. And so we exaggeratively lie in these ways. Which, as we're going to see, you know, it's vengeance is what it is. And we're going to see this next week when we look at what Jesus says about vengeance. But here's the point. When we exaggerate like this, we are twisting the truth in order to try to produce the results that, what we, that we want. And what this is, is actually just being a manipulative liar. How about self-preserving lies? Have you ever gotten into trouble for twisting the truth, or maybe you left parts of the truth out strategically in order to protect your self-image, the way people see you, or a family member or spouse sees you? If you've ever been on Facebook, you know exactly how this works. Nobody gets up and posts no filtered pictures right when they roll out of bed, all right, to try to show everyone just how much work they take to be presentable. Nobody does that. And if you do, like we've seen, I've seen a couple people do this, Usually, what's the motive there? To show how brave you are, how real you are, how honest you are, right? Like, look at me, right? That's what it is. How about this one? You ever taken credit for somebody else's work? And when somebody came up and complimented for you, complimented you for something they did, maybe you didn't lie and say, oh, yeah, thank you, I did a great job. You just were quiet, strategically, right? In order to still give the appearance that it was you, instead of correcting them and giving credit where credit was due. 
That's strategic lying. There are so many ways we Pinocchios find to lie. And we didn't even talk about dishonest business practices, did we? And there's a whole bunch there. We could we'd camp out on that for a while. The truth is, though, whenever we bend the truth, hide the truth, or manipulate the truth, we have engaged not in truth-telling, but in the language of hell, which is lying. And so do you see how our natural hearts are no different than the scribes and the Pharisees? Don't throw stones, because you're not without sin here. We set up degrees of sin, and think about this. Don't zone out. This is important. We set up degrees of sin. And here's how this works. We think, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a lie. I don't intentionally go around and just deceive people like straight out. I would, I would never just tell a lie while crossing my fingers. I wouldn't do that. That's another way that we justify lying, isn't it? But the reality is we are all regularly guilty of at least half the stuff we just mentioned, are we not? The truth is, if we actually understood the holiness of God, we wouldn't dare even for a second become impressed with our pathetic versions of it, right? Because that's what it is. By comparison, God's holiness and his standard, the way he fulfills truth-telling, blows ours out of the water. It's not even close. And so what we tend to do in response to this realization is exactly what the Pharisees did. Not only do we pick and choose aspect of God's law and his holiness to focus on, but we quickly focus on the letter of the law while missing the heart of the law. And if we miss the heart of the law, what do we miss? Well, obedience, as we saw last week, but we miss, church, the heart of God. God is not simply concerned about external obedience. He wants your heart. He wants to see your heart obey and to love him. Are you a murderer, Jesus asks? No? Okay. But do you hate? Because hatred is a murderous heart. Are you an adulterer, Jesus asked? No? How about we look at your internet search history? For to look upon a person is to lust after them and commit adultery with them in your heart. And so the point is, as long as we keep focusing on the mint, the dill, and the cumin of the law, while neglecting the weightier matters, such as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we will never see or or obey God's perfect law as we ought, which leads us to our last point. To be a kingdom citizen, you must understand the purpose of the law, the perversion of the law, but finally, the perfection of the law. Verse 37, here's what Jesus said. Let what you say be simply yes or no, for anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus' standard, pretty simple, isn't it? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In totality, anything more is evil and comes from evil. Anything more is the language of hell. Does that mean that we should never take oaths as the Quakers or the Anabaptists or the Jehovah's Witnesses say? Is that what Jesus is getting at? Is he throwing out the old law and just saying, don't do that, just do this? No. We should never solemnly, does this mean that we should never solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will help be God? Because there was a whole lot of people in church history like the Quakers who said, I'm not going to do that. That's not Jesus' point here. Why? 
Because several reasons, and we'll deal with this more fully in Fellowship and Focus, shameless plug. One, the early apostles made oaths. Paul himself made oaths. Two, when Jesus was on trial, right, before the religious leaders, he answered according to an oath. Three, God himself swears oaths throughout the entire Bible. We find it in the Old Testament and in the book of Hebrews. So this is not a contradiction. Thank you, atheists, for pointing this out, but it's not. It's not a contradiction. We have to nuance and understand this. Jesus is coming along, and he is contrasting heavily is what he's doing, right? He's saying you should be so honest. You should be the type of person who is so honest that you keep your word always and you don't need oaths. Or, as Psalm 15.4 tells us, you should be the kind of person who keeps your word so much to the point, even so when it hurts. That's what Psalm 15.4 talks about. And so Jesus' point is his followers, citizens of his kingdom, must not have degrees or levels of truth-telling. There's one degree, truth or lie. They must not ever think, because I didn't promise or swear an oath, I'm free to break my word. In fact, they are to be the kind of people who are so honest they don't need to swear an oath at all. Sure, they might still do so on rare and special occasions like those of us who are married have done, but Jesus' point is that our level of honesty is to be absolute and total truthfulness. And anything less is a righteousness that does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It falls short of making you a kingdom citizen. And until we come to understand that, until we come to understand the perfection of the law that Jesus is actually pointing us to, we still have not hit the mark. We remained citizens of the kingdom of darkness and not the kingdom of light. So how then do we come to understand the perfection of the law? By never lying? By trying super duper hard not to lie? Is that how we do it? Well, okay, Pinocchio, good luck with that. As you said, I'll never lie again. (laughs) Yeah, you will. All right? No. We come to understand the perfection of the law in three ways. One, we understand that God is before us. We see that God is behind us. And third, we see that God has bestowed us. How is God for us? Well, and this is actually pretty cool. In verse 33, the Greek word for keep literally means to pay. And so if we put that together, what is it saying? It says, you shall pay your oaths to the Lord. You shall pay truth-telling to the Lord, is what that's saying. Now, why would it say it like that? Well, I think it's important. I think there's a reason for it. Because to Jesus' point, we are to keep or to pay not just our oaths to God, but everything we say, every single word, or even beyond that, right? So Matthew 12, what does it tell us about our idle words? Even our idle words will be taken to account on the day of judgment. That's a terrifying passage, but it's true. All right? Even our idle words will require payment to Yahweh. And that's scary. And even more scary is when we realize that God is before us. Right? He's not far away in heaven. He's not off in some temple. He's everywhere. He's here right now, constantly. He's never not with us. And if God is always before us, 
right, as the first point points out, he demands payment not only for our oaths, but everything we say, then only a fool would not be terrified of his omnipresence, of his everywhereness. You'd be foolish not to be. All right? For his holy, all-powerful, this holy, all-powerful, all-present God demands absolute, perfect payment to him. All right? He, he demands that we pay our oaths perfectly unto him. And so if we are sitting here thinking that we must perfectly pay our oaths to him, our statements to him of truth and what we owe, you're either going to have one of two things happen in your life. You're going to become a deluded, self-righteous Pharisee who thinks you're doing it when you're not, or more likely, you're going to be terrified when you see the demands of his perfect law. But, this is important, church, when you come to see that God isn't just before us, but he's behind us. Another way we might say that second point is he's for us, as Romans 8 points out. That changes everything. It changes everything. For when God is for you, you say what Paul said in Romans 8, who can be against us? Absolutely nothing. And that includes unkept oaths that have not been paid unto God as we ought. You see that? Why is God behind us? Why is it that God can be for us? Because Christ Jesus is the one who perfectly paid the oaths unto God that you or I never could. And not only did he pay it all, but he did so for us because he is behind us, because he loves us, which enables us to live before God without that fear and terror. Right? It changes that. It leads us, as the psalmist did, to say, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I was reading this week of a man who got found out for being unfaithful to his wife. And as he was getting counseling from the pastor, he mentioned it. To the pastor that, you know, he was going into the details of what happened, you know, trying to figure out where, what, why, to avoid all that in the future. And, he's, and more often than not, wherever he would meet his adulterous partner, it was at their home. And he told the pastor, he said, you know, before the sin wouldn't be taken place, my wife, she had all of these pictures around the house from our, from our wedding, of us being married, of us together. And I always had to go around and take those down before I would engage in my sin. Because it was too much of a stark reminder of the truth. So they had to go. Because if they were continually in his sight, you know what would have happened? It would have prevented his marriage from being shaken. Right? And so church, the principle here for us is when our eyes are upon the Lord, as that verse points out, and we realize not only that God is always before us, but that he is completely 100% behind us, it changes everything. In fact, this is what enables us to be bestowed by God with power to live a life where our yes means yes and our no truly means no. And when we live in the awareness of an ever-present God who loves us completely, 
how can that not affect our behavior? If you know God is constantly before us, he's here, he's around us, but he's not a God who's before us to judge us and condemn us, but because of Christ and through the blood of Christ, we know that he's a God who's behind us or for us. How can we not live in the power that he has bestowed upon us? How can we not live in a way where our yes is yes and our no is no? Not only, church, have we been bestowed with power, but we've been bestowed bestowed with a mission to do what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel. To bring the good news, the truth of God, to a world who is in total darkness. And I can promise you this. Oops. I can tell you this. If our yes isn't yes, and our no isn't no, we're going to absolutely cripple our ability to be effective in that mission. Which is to what? Introduce others to the one who paid it all. Which And if we do that, what do we do? We grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the one who loves us so much and has given so much for us, the one who is before us, who is behind us, and who has bestowed us with his power and his love and ability to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And so let us be a people, church, who are not shaken, a people who realize that God is always amongst us. He's always at our right hand. And so let our eyes then, church, always remain upon the Lord. I want to close with Psalm 34, 5, which says this. Those who look to him are radiant. Those who look to him, right? As we're going to sing in a moment, be thou my vision. Those who look to him and God, Christ, the Lord, is their vision. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would help us to speak the language of truth. Not because of our obedience, but because of Christ, which empowers us to do what we could never do. To love God's law. Not to shy away from it, but to love it and find his burdens, to find it not be a burden, to find it not be heavy, but an easy yoke and a light yoke. And so, Lord, I ask if there's anyone here who's struggling in these ways, who looks at their life and says, you know what? I don't appear to be a kingdom, to be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. But I am regularly and constantly speaking the language of the kingdom of darkness, which is lying. Father, I pray that they would repent and that they would not look inward to themselves, but that they would look outward to Christ, who is the one who is before them, the one who is behind them and for them, and who can empower them to live as you call us to live, with grace, with mercy, with yes, with imperfection, but with a desire that seeks to please you because our eyes are constantly upon you as we recognize you are always with us and you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to be a church that is known for truth, not lie. Help us to be gentle in the truth, not add offense to the truth but to speak the truth in love as you've called us to, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing.